1: What's up everybody? It is episode three, Low Hanging Fruit, the second episode that we've called it Low Hanging Fruit, so that's still the name of the podcast for now. I'm Charlie Marlowe, that's Brendan Schaefer. B-Shafe, how you doing buddy?
0: Hey, I'm doing really good, glad to be back with you. I like Low Hanging Fruit, honestly, it's kind of growing on me too.
1: Yeah, I like it as well and I think uh, so far a lot of the people do. So the big news actually happened, what, last week, Friday. So we're almost a week away from the Matt Carpenter news. And uh, there's a lot to talk about. We can discuss the signing. John Moselock had a press conference. I saw you put that on your YouTube channel. Matt Carpenter met with the media. I did not get to see that one. And I know you're all involved in all this. So uh, I'll just throw it to you first. Matt Carpenter signs with the Cardinals one year deal. Cardinals only have to pay about 740k. Your thoughts.
0: My my first thoughts when it happened were <laughs> of course. Like again, we always have talked about the Cardinals just doing the most cardinalsy things. And how cardinalsy is it to bring back a guy that the last time he was here and left, people were ready to see him go. And it was it was time, and you got to have a nice little send off. And people, you know, people were irritated with Carpenter the last couple of years of him in St. Louis because he wasn't performing well. But then it was like, OK, you know, he he got somewhat of a send off and they it didn't have to get too terribly awkward like they didn't cut him. It was fine. Now he can go on to do whatever he wants to do. And he had a nice little rebound with the Yankees, got him a contract with the Padres. But then last year, he kind of reverted back to old ways and wasn't performing. So a Cardinals team that lost 90 games, you're going, all right, how can you try and improve on the margins of the roster? Let's bring back Matt Carpenter to hit 180. Like, that's the way a lot of Cardinals fans are feeling about it. and. From like a performance standpoint, I don't know that it would be too reasonable to expect anything beyond that in 2024 when in 2021 it was problematic. So I I think I understand some frustration from the fans from that perspective. The interesting thing is the whole notion of clubhouse leadership and how that point was really driven home by John Mosellock. And it seems like that conclusion that he draws is coming from within the Cardinals clubhouse saying, yeah, this is something that we need which is a really fascinating angle in all of this.
1: Yeah, so when the news happens last week, I'm running around, working out, running a couple errands. I see it. I go, okay, I'm going to jump on. I'm going to do a video on it. And I kind of, instead of doing my research first, I did it while <laughs> I was doing the video. Because I'm like, let's yeah. see, how did he hit last year? Where did he play defensively the last couple of years? And I was, as I was immediately processing it, I'm trying to think how this makes sense. And I probably overthought it because I was focused too much on how it potentially helps the Cardinals from a baseball standpoint. And I know John Mosellock said that's half of it, but I think it's even less than half. It it sounds like, and and I don't want to play the percentage game we can, but it sounds like it's more like 75% of this move is for the leadership piece and 25% of the move is for whatever he can give you on the baseball field. And I don't think there are very high expectations for that at all. But as I'm trying to piece together, well, how does it make sense? Okay, can he play a little first? Could he still play outfield? He was doing that for the Yankees a little bit. Could he ever play third base? No, when you listen to John Moselock, this is way more about the clubhouse and leadership and them lacking voices and getting back to that good old Cardinal way, baby.
0: And what's interesting about that is, okay, we know they lost Yachty and Albert, and then the next year they were terrible. Like, we, we saw that play out. Interesting though, because Albert was only there for one year. So I'm sure he was a very net positive effect on the clubhouse the year that he was back. But he, it's not like before that there was this obvious Albert Void for 10 years and then he comes back. And so that part's a little bit iffy for me. But Yachty obviously ran this organization, right? As as the 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 head honcho from the catcher position and was really, really important to kind of how that clubhouse functioned. And then stepping into the next season of 2023 you looked at it and said, all right, yes, there's a little bit of a void there because of guys that have been here, but Paul Goldschmidt is a veteran. Nolan Arenado is a veteran. Um, The the, the drop-off really shouldn't be that significant. You still got Adam Wainwright, but then Wainwright gets hurt. And so it's kind of a weird year for him from a leadership perspective, because when everything is going to hell in a handbasket in April, he's not even there for a lot of it, right? Because he's rehabbing or whatever. So he's not like hands-on in the way that he, otherwise would have been. And then you just think about the leadership styles of Paul Goldschmidt and Nolan Arenado, uh, And it's been a lot's been made about it, but I think a lot of what's been talked about and reported is pretty accurate. Where like Paul Goldschmidt is a guy that leads by example and he will, he'll speak up and, and say things to guys when he thinks it needs to be done, but it's not really his style to get up on the table and rah, rah. And, and in a way that you could see, like we're not in that clubhouse when the players are, you know, a lot of the times the media gets a glimpse, but we don't get the full picture. But you could imagine, like, Yadier Molina and the way that his personality goes, that, that he would have run that clubhouse in a particular manner. And then there's Arenado, who, like, it's not that he's not going to be vocal necessarily, but he's an intense guy. He His leadership is almost the example of just how ridiculously committed he is to his own individual craft, and others can pick up on that. But he's not necessarily that conventional type of leader either. Uh, which is not to necessarily knock him, but if those are the two guys that are sort of the leaders of your clubhouse, you go out and think, all right, it could be helpful to maybe have a little bit more muscle in that regard. And I think with the the press conference from John Moselak, you hear him basically say in talking with guys like Goldie and Arnauto and Ollie Marmel, that was the conclusion that the Cardinals from within the clubhouse said, hey, we need a little bit more. But then I think about Matt Carpenter. He's not really that vocal leader either, at least the you know from what I can recall. So uh, again, we don't see everything within the clubhouse, so you can take it with a grain of salt. But it's very interesting that the guy that went out and got like was he vocally leading the clubhouse in 2020 and 2021 when he was hitting 180? I don't, I don't know how realistic of an expectation that is, Charlie.
1: Yeah, and that's why I think the whole leadership aspect is is overblown. And here's why I say that. Now. Now look, you and I are, are doing content in YouTube, so, so nothing is better for views, let's be honest, than what happened last year with Tyler O'Neill, for what happened last year with Wilson Contreras. And, and those were off the field or on the field, but, but clubhouse leadership type decisions, I think most people agree that the Cardinals didn't handle either of those well at all. Surely with Contreras, even you can make the argument with Tyler O'Neill. okay, he needed to hustle. Maybe it's better to keep that in-house. My point, though, is, to me, we only talk about a lack of leadership when a team is bad. I don't remember, and I've been here since 2008. I could be wrong. I don't remember ever talking about the Cardinals lacking leadership. Now, to be fair, Yachty had essentially been here the entire time, but also... They were winning the entire time. Even the years where they didn't make the playoffs, go back to 2008, go back to the end of the Matheny era, they were still a winning ball club. And so we talked about leadership with Matheny, but that was also based more on decision-making and handling a bullpen and Travis Ishikawa and things like that. So what I'm trying to say is, to me, the media and the fans, we go leadership route when a team is bad. If the team was good last year, we wouldn't discuss it. But... I think it's fair to say that John Mozeliak is a pretty straight shooter, but also teams don't tell you everything. So the fact that John Mozeliak is willing to say, hey, we did lack voices last year, I think it's even worse than we thought it was. I want people to know that. But big picture to me, the team sucked because the pitching sucked. We wouldn't talk about leadership if the team won 86 games made the playoffs even if they didn't make the playoffs and they won 85 games we wouldn't be having these these conversations the pitching sucked last year everybody was depressed they sold off assets it was a freaking Adam Wainwright sideshow for the second half of the season that's why everybody was depressed in my opinion but I do think there is something there with the leadership but I think we're overblowing
0: but can you maybe connect some of that pitching stuff to the lack of and again, this is gonna. This is a careful line to walk because you're not necessarily trying to rip a guy and say, "Well, it was this guy's fault." Um, but that's essentially what the pitchers did to Wilson Contreras, and that's not very good leadership, right? Like your new catcher uh, it, it already has a tough job ahead of him because he's replacing a legend that was beloved in the the place that he was and the guy who kind of ran the clubhouse. And you're gonna go within the first few weeks and basically throw that guy under the bus to the manager to the general manager or the, 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 the Pobo, like if the pitchers were telling Mo and telling Ollie, like this, this Contreras guy, we've got some, you know, we got some things to work on here. Okay. But like, what's the way in which they went about doing that, that led to the sudden benching of the catcher that they had just signed for 87 and a half million. So the pitching was bad, but the pitchers also maybe kind of did some of the scapegoating, right? Like, like, and then you think about the way that they go out and sign new pitchers that are veteran and they want to kind of reset the clubhouse from that standpoint too. carp on the position player side. Okay. But that they haven't made many moves in that regard. They kind of felt like the group they had from a position player standpoint was pretty good and could probably compete this year. That's why they didn't make too many moves in that area. Pitching was the complete overhaul. And it's almost like the type of guys they brought in every time they brought one in, they talked about the value of his veteran experience and the way that he can kind of help within the clubhouse, and you think about who's gone, okay, Jordan Montgomery was really good from an on-field standpoint, but, and it's not that he was, I'm not going to say that he was like the problem with all of this, but he was kind of the new guy as well, and he's been in some different clubhouse environments, and I feel like I get the sense from him that it was just sort of like, what's going on here, like some things aren't maybe the way I'm used to having them, and just a level of discomfort. I, they never would say like, yeah, Jordan Montgomery doesn't want to throw to Contreras. They never really did say that. But very consistently, Andrew Kisner was catching Jordan Montgomery. You could go back and look through the game logs and it was like a lot. No, eventually Wilson started catching him. Again, this is kind of tea leaf stuff, not like legitimate stuff that I can say, oh, yeah, this was happening. But you kind of look at that. And then the Jack Flaherty, I mean, when the benching happened, it was shortly after an outing where Jack Flaherty gave up like 27 runs and after the game said, we're throwing pitches that don't make sense. And I mean, Flaherty has kind of tried to go back to that comment, even like within the last few weeks and say, you know, that was misconstrued. I didn't mean it that way. Um, Was that a comment that led to everything with Wilson Contreras? I don't think so, but I bet there was more being said behind the scenes. So without like dropping the hammer and saying like, okay, that's the problem with last year's leadership you could at least kind of look and say they wanted to kind of reshuffle that rotation and, and get guys in there that they felt like were going to be good with a handle on that aspect of things. So while I do think just to say, Hey, every guy you bring in has got to be just a great leader and that's going to get you 20 extra wins might be a simplistic view. I also think there were some things probably going on where they said like, it's why they're attacking the offseason in this way. We don't maybe know what all of them were, but you can look at their actions now and say, maybe there's a reason that all of this leadership stuff is important to the way the Cardinals are building their team this year.
1: Right. And to me, this one is all about nuance and there's a lot to it. It really could have been the perfect or imperfect crap storm of everything happening negatively last year. You can start with coaching staff, dusty Blake, Mike Maddox moves on Joe McEwing. Now bench coach is different, but I'm just, I'm, I'm throwing everything out there. It's relevant. Yeah. Pitch clock is new world baseball classic. Here's, here's Wilson Contreras. I'm going to, I'm not going to go. Everybody else did. He should have went too, because hell, if every pitcher is going to go, what does it matter if he's there? That's the biggest one. Can I say, I
0: hate hearing that as the excuse. I still think that's the biggest one that started it because when they had all of these other things, they didn't have the immediate rebound to like have that foundation to bounce back from the things that were going wrong because they didn't coalesce and come together in spring like a normal team would again, Ollie Marmel during the season, when it would get brought up was very careful. You could tell that he wanted to say more than he could because he knew how it would sound. And that's savvy of him. Cardinals fans won't respect that, but that's savvy of him. But I buy into it and say that had an impact to where, when the snowball began rolling down the Hill, they didn't have the foundation within there to stop it. But you're right. Like the coaching factor. Don't you think Mike Maddox being around, not a knock on dusty but it's a factor of experience and wisdom. Could, could he have had a guiding hand to steady that ship with a brand new catcher in, in, in April? Maybe so. You just didn't have any of the things you needed. Adam Wainwright wasn't the, the Adam Wainwright that we know because he was hurt and then couldn't pitch well because he was still hurt. All of those things had an impact. But I, I like talking about the World Baseball Classic thing because I think when we get to spring, you're going to sense a difference because that's not going to be a factor. I don't know if people buy that. People might call it excuse-making, but I actually think it's real.
1: Yeah. And then here's the other part. To me, sometimes we assess blame. Oh, it's either Contreras' fault or the pitcher's fault. It was everybody's fault. And that's why two things can be, can be true at the same time. Did the pitching staff throw Wilson Contreras under the bus specifically publicly? What we, what we heard with Jack Flaherty, you mentioned Montgomery wanting to throw to Kisner. Yes. Maybe. I. I <laughs> right. You can, you can kind of go through the game logs and you can, you can extrapolate there. Do I think Jack Flaherty handled that well? No. Do I believe him after the fact when he's trying to sanitize the record? No, but I get why he's doing it. Here's the other part, though. Let's not take this also totally off the plate of Wilson Contreras. Wilson Contreras was doing something that was so bad that nobody wanted to throw to him. That's essentially what happened. What happened was it was a mutiny from the starting pitchers, and they said something has to change to a point. I've never seen this in my life, but they took a guy who's seven, eight years in the big leagues and said you cannot catch, even though you've caught for six, seven years, you cannot catch in the big leagues for eight days. So two things can be true at the same time. Flaherty should have handled it better. I mean, first of all, the pitchers should have pitched better. That's, That's the biggest part. But Wilson Contreras, meatballs they were throwing. I mean,
0: that was the thing, really.
1: Okay, but hold on, hold on. All the other stuff. But Wilson Contreras was also doing something that was so odd. I've never seen this in my life. I'm 41 years old. I've never seen any catcher on any team be taken out of the lineup for eight days to clean things up. So he must have been doing something also that was really not on the same page. Let's be real.
0: And I think some of that, like the reporting that then came out, I don't remember if it was like Michael K when they played yes. the Yankees or something, but that there was maybe like a pitch angle to all of this. And like, imagine like the, the, the reporting that he came up with was he said, Oh, I talked to some Cardinals people and they explained it, that he was calling pitches that certain pitchers didn't throw, but like pitch is a relatively new thing. And if you're pressing a button on there, that is a button designated for whatever pitch and the guy that's out there on the mound. is like, I don't even know what that, what do you, I don't even know what that is. And you've got a pitch clock as well that you have to you got to throw a pitch within you know the 20 seconds you could see how there could be some discord there and some people not on the same page so maybe that it was as simple as that maybe there were some other things going on uh, but you're right like what would have been best is everybody to come together come together in a very team oriented way take some responsibility for their roles instead of pointing fingers at each other I feel like Wilson got all the fingers pointed at him and then how did he react within that like publicly he was a saint about it but like privately that had to hurt because you're like, I'm trying to do my best here, but I'm not, you know, there's something that's not clicking. And so <laughs> while I think responsibility could have gone all the way around, the hurt feelings might have came from the fact that one guy felt like he, it was all being pinned on him for whatever amount of responsibility he had. That could not be a good feeling when you're in your first month with a new
1: team. Yeah, another part of this, and I'm, I'm just kind of going off on a tangent, but there's, there's also, there's reasons that guys don't get contracts from their previous teams right? I mean, Wilson Contreras can hit. We we know he was never a great defensive catcher, but he wasn't terrible. He was serviceable. The, the Cubs did not want to sign Wilson Contreras. I think something we also need to bring up is, you know, Wilson Contreras as a winning catcher in his thirties, that's, that's still something that we need to figure out. If, if he's a guy who can catch 110, 115 games and lead a staff, lead a winning staff, right? It's, it's fair to wonder that. And I think when you move on from Kisner, the 50-game backup, I mean, would it be crazy to see even next year if it's more of a timeshare with Herrera, if Herrera hits? So I, I think I think Wilson Contreras got thrown under the bus, but also he was doing something so, so poorly and so odd in the scheme of baseball. They just don't do that. You don't do that. You don't say we're going to make him an outfielder. You don't pull him for eight days unless something is really, really bad.
0: I mean, there had to be some things going on, right? We've kind of hinted at what we think some of them might have been. Will we ever know the full story? Perhaps not. What I think is interesting, though, with the Kisner angle is that that's a guy that signed with the Rangers this offseason after the Cardinals non-tendered him, signed a major league deal for almost $2 million with the old Cardinals pitching coach who just won a World Series. And when I tweeted about that, just kind of, I thought it was interesting that that's where he ends up with a nice little contract for the season people were ripping me like, oh, you're, you just hate the Cardinals. I'm like, I just think it's interesting to point out because everybody talked about, you know, you look at Cardinals fans and they're not too hip to Dusty Blake. I think it'd be interesting to give him a chance this year and see how year two looks a little bit different with another year of experience under his belt. But it's very interesting to me that the, the guy that goes to another team wins a World Series then says, hey, that catcher from St. Louis is pretty good. We should get him on our staff. I just thought was notable. And the Cardinals, I feel like almost made the decision because part of it last year was, yeah, maybe pitchers were asking, yeah, I'd rather throw to Kisner, which is like a a nice compliment to Kiz. But if the Cardinals have another plan in place where, like, we we did pay Contreras, and even though that stuff happened at the beginning of the year, we do kind of need him to to take the load here at the catcher position the next few seasons. We can't we can't keep having this sort of preferential stuff coming from the pitching staff. We'll take away the toy and we like this kid Herrera, and he's going to come in and, and be an important part. Like Mosel, like I said, we want him to, to play. We want him to catch. I would be surprised if both guys fully healthy if Herrera isn't starting 50, 60 games this year at a minimum. Like, I, I do think it's already going to be more of that split, and they'll keep Contreras in with DH opportunities, etc. cetera. But, yeah, it's really interesting, the dynamic of you had this catcher that everybody wanted to throw to last year, and now the organization said, Our plan is that that guy's not going to be on the team anymore because we kind of need to go all in on on what the current plan is going to be.
1: How about this argument? Go back to the Tony La Russa days. Veteran managers, one World Series. You got Dave Duncan, arguably the greatest pitching coach we've ever seen. You had Mark McGuire at the time. He has cachet. You got folks like Dave McKay, veteran coaching staff. How about the argument that this coaching staff, Ali, Dusty Blake, Turner Ward, a lot of new guys. You bring in Daniel Descalzo. How about the argument, and people are bringing this up, I think it's fair, that this particular coaching staff, it's not Tony LaRusso's coaching staff. Maybe this coaching staff does need more player veteran leadership to counterbalance a young staff. I don't even know if I believe that, but I think it's a fair talking point. It's probably one that we bring up when a team loses, but I think there's something there potentially.
0: Yeah, I mean, I could see the point of view. I just think like when you think about adversity, a veteran coaching staff is going to have that wealth of experience to know how to handle adversity compared to a coaching staff that hasn't been in that position at the big league level altogether before. And that's kind of what you saw last year where everybody was in relatively new roles. And I think underrated is maybe the the value of a good bench coach, which is not to say that McEwing is a bad one because he's been one a long time in this league. but he also wasn't maybe the right bench coach for. Last year's team, but it was he was the one that they kind of had to settle upon when Matt Holiday took the job and then said no, thank you. So that kind of put him in a bit of a bind where I liken it to if you're playing like an old school 2005 MLB video game on your PlayStation, <laughs> and you get a little notification pop up in franchise mode that says, Hey, your bench coach is retired, you need to pick a new one. You go, I don't really think I care about that. So I'll just go to the top of the list of like the free agent bench coaches, and it'll say like Jay McEwing there because he's been around and has done it. And you just plug him in and say, all right, on with the, the rest of the day. That's kind of how it felt like for the Cardinals last year. And I don't think it was anybody's fault in particular, but I just get the sense that like, all right, with a full off season to really get to pick our guy, you know, it was just obvious that they were going to go in a different direction. And I feel like the camaraderie with Ali Marmel and Daniel Descalso is going to be such that uh, maybe you do gain a little bit more cohesiveness from that coaching unit than you had last year. Um, But as far as like experience, yeah, you could say there's an experience deficit in in having guys who've been around the block when the coaches maybe haven't necessarily been in the roles that they're in. It probably can't hurt, and maybe that's part of what the Cardinals are doing here with the the moves that they're making.
1: All right, it's time to hold you accountable now. Okay. Because uh, Twitter was going crazy. When I say crazy, that means I think one or two people said, hey, Brendan, how can you love this Matt Carpenter move so much. Is, is I, that a fair characterization? It. Because I looked at your tweets. It did seem like you were very pro this move. May, maybe the most pro I I've seen of people. So again, I'm going to hold you accountable. Explain no, yourself, explain yourself why you love this Matt Carpenter move so much.
0: Yeah. I think my first tweet when it happened was, am I crazy to think the Matt Carpenter thing is great? And a lot of the replies said, <laughs> yes, you very much are. Um, and then I, and then even before the John Mosellock presser, I then kind of thought about, all right, what's the what's the angle here for the Cardinals? And I think I tweeted something to the effect of, you know, we know the Cardinals are chasing veteran leadership. When Carpenter was here last time, he came attached to a prohibitive contract in the expectation of playing time. None of those things are here now. Um, and the fact that he's got kind of the Cardinal way in his blood, he knows what it looks like to wait in St. Louis. And I simply said, I could see it. Like, I could see that those are the boxes they've wanted checked because they've told us not because we outside think that that's the only way to win. A lot of people would say, get talented players and you'll probably win. But we know that this is what the Cardinals are after because they've done it three other times this offseason with the pitchers that they've brought in, right? And so that was sort of my my logic and my angle on it. And then I simply said, I love it for the same reason that Charlie loves when there's you know Clubhouse Discord that he gets to talk about on YouTube. I think it is chaotic and fantastic and just like, that I knew what the reaction would be. I knew that it would be a, a strong reaction from Cardinals fans. And I continue to explain to people. I am not in a position in my life where I was in 2011 as a senior in high school, where I lived and died with whether the Cardinals won. I think it's great when they do well, I want them to do well. Um, does this move automatically lead to five more wins this season? I don't think it does. And it doesn't, Bother me I don't lose sleep over the fact that it maybe isn't the most effective use of their roster and I like that Matt Carpenter's around because I just think it's kind of fun so I I think my the context of that is my position on this is not the Cardinals have got to win the World Series this year or I'm a sad boy uh it's let you know let's have some chaos because it makes life more interesting and people may not love that explanation but that is kind of where I was coming
1: from yeah and you mentioned the the roster part of it I found that maybe the funniest part after I watched or listened to John Mosellock, and it was on your YouTube channel, because it was almost like now it seems like the narrative is the 26th man doesn't even matter. Right. It's funny to me because every spring training, we have fun on the radio and hey, what's the roster? Who's going to be on the bench? Who's in the bullpen? Who's the 26th man? It almost came across as John Mozeliak said, well, it's the 26th man. Uh, I'm used to 25-man rosters. This is kind of a freebie. And look, you have to pay somebody the big league minimum anyway. Carpenter's making seven, 740. The Braves are paying most of that. But I do find it funny that now we're basically saying, oh, it doesn't really matter. It can be a half coach, half leadership. He gets a couple at-bats. By the way, anybody who's saying these at-bats aren't coming from someone else, that's just wrong. They are. Even if it's 150 at-bats, those are coming from other people, just so everybody knows. I just find it funny that, that now the 26th man on the roster doesn't matter. And this is another tangent. I've always thought the 26th man on the roster should be what I call, a, I wrote this down, a DFG, a designated fast guy. It should only be a dude who just, look, can you even hit? Can you drop a bunt? You steal a bag, you, you pinch run. It's fun, designated fast guy. I'm thinking of uh, uh, Chambers, a- Adrian Chambers, Adrian Chambers, somebody sure. like that to add a little juice to a, to, a, to a roster. But now it's like, oh, it's the 26 man. Who cares? He's kind of a coach. I just found that kind of funny.
0: I think it is funny. I think it is a great way that you would explain this away if you wanted to make it look you know, better than, than other people think it is, the decision to have Matt Carpenter back. Like the 26 man is so, you know, so valuable that I think it just probably came together at Jackson holidays wedding. Did you see the picture of all the, you know, that that's probably yes. where it happens. So they go, you know, what would be great if we just had you back this year, wouldn't that be fun? Well, the veterans told me that they wanted him. So we got him like, that's again, if you wanted to take a simplistic view and, and do some dot connecting it, it's kind of a funny way to look at it. Um, uh, But so like, yeah, I, Could the 26 man be used in a different way? Sure. They could go out and sign somebody that they pay five or $6 million to that's, you know, got good numbers last season and could contribute. But this also is kind of the perfect out for the Cardinals to not spend more money because they can say, well, this, they really wanted the veteran. The clubhouse felt that they needed it. And this one so happens to be the major league minimum rather than go out and sign a veteran. That's going to cost six or $8 million. It's kind of like a good little out for the Cardinals to where they don't have to, like they can explain why they did this, and people may not agree, but it, it, it at least is an explanation that kind of lines up where they don't—they're not being looked at like, well, why in the heck did you not spend? It's like, well, the clubhouse really wanted this veteran, so we had to go get him.
1: Yeah, and speaking of Jackson Holiday, we had Matt Holiday on the radio show. Was that yesterday? Hot Take Central Five Nine of the Fan. Brendan's in on on Fridays. Matt Carpenter is at the uh, the Holiday Compound there around Stillwater to hit with. Uh, with Matt holiday. So Matt holiday was talking about that and working with carp and trying to fix some things. And he's saying, you know, the exit velos are there where there could be an improvement. So, so we'll see. I don't think he's going to hit 180 again, but maybe whatever he gives you offensively. Okay. He's, in, he's probably going to have a couple nice moments, hit a home run here, draw a walk, whatever it is. But when I was um, talking with Matt holiday and here's where maybe we'll transition to something else, because I was, I was thinking as we're doing this show, this is the time of year where there's not a lot going on. Yeah. We just talked for, for 30 minutes about Matt Carpenter. But as I was thinking about that, Matt Holliday falls off the Hall of Fame ballot in his first year. He gets four votes. And I think that's fair, to be honest. But just Hall of Fame voting in general, I don't know, I don't know how much you pay attention, how much you care about it, but I just kind of look at it and I scratch my head a little bit with some of these alleged PED guys. And I wonder why some guys their vote total increases and others don't, if I was voting, I'd probably have to say either I let none of them in or I let all of them in. The one that really jumps out to me is, or I guess there's two, but if we're talking about alleged PDs, why is A-Rod and Manny Ramirez, why are they not going up as as steadily as Gary Sheffield, for example? Make that make sense to me.
0: And they've got better numbers, right? Like more home yeah. runs, more impressive careers. I, and you'd have to maybe remind me the circumstances surrounding Sheffield. I know, and we talked about this on, on my radio show in Columbia the other day too, where it's like, there's some there's some history of it with, with Sheffield. I don't specifically remember when it was, but a lot of voters, and I'm in BBWAA. I cannot vote on the Hall of Fame until 10 years of, of service in the organization, which will be a, a while yet to come. But I know that a lot of folks with the way that they vote, they view it as guys who were found to have been involved in PEDs after Major League Baseball kind of took the hardline stance after McGuire, after Sosa, after Rafael Palmeiro and all that. Those are the guys that they say you knew that that was like specifically a rule in Major League Baseball. You you did a suspension for it anyway um, because you just kind of shirked the rules later on. And so like those guys don't get the, the same benefit of the doubt. Uh, Sheffield now to be clear still didn't get in and that was his last year on the ballot. So he's, he's done in terms of like, the writers are not going to be able to put him in. If Gary Sheffield is ever to make it, it's going to come from, you know, the, the other ways that they do that, the veterans committee down the road. But I think that might be the distinction that a lot of writers do take is when, when were your, your associations with PEDs and was it like before or after the notion of major league baseball said like, don't do this. Like McGuire was before, right? Like, Technically, they they didn't have a, a a rule in place where they said you can't do this type of whatever he was doing. Um, but, of, of course, everybody kind of knew like, OK, that's not cool to be doing, even though a lot of players were doing it. So I think that's kind of the line in the distinction. Me personally, I would have had Gary Sheffield voted in, but I also would have a hard time not voting in A-Rod or Manny Ramirez. But I, that's kind of like the morality angle that a lot of folks would say eh, th- th- they they were just too far removed from like the timeline of when all of that took place.
1: Yeah. If I was voting, I, I like to think about it like this for the Hall of Fame. I have three buckets. We always like the the bucket analogy. My buckets are you say the name, you go Hall of Famer. Mm-hmm. My other bucket is you say the name and you say not a Hall of Famer. So there's a there's just a couple people in that first bucket. You say the name, boom, Hall of Famer, right? Derek Jeter. There's a million people in the bucket where you say, not a Hall of Famer. But then there's a nice solid percentage. And I would put somebody like Matt Holiday in there where you go, not a surefire Hall of Famer, not a not Hall of Famer, but let's have a conversation. And I think it's fair that Matt Holiday fell off the ballot. But I bring this up because when I look at the guys that got in, and by the way, I don't really care that much, but I do feel like we're kind of starting over the last five, 10, 15 years to let everybody in, right? Because what I'm seeing is, and I'm not trying to take anything away from Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, like those surefire guys where you go, boom, they're in. Cal Rifkin, whoever, George Brett, Tony Gwynn, guys that we're thinking about coming up. Now, this has all gotten very muddied with the steroid guys, but I I really feel like now we're kind of putting everybody in, and it's a lot of guys that I think are, okay, they're they're probably Hall of Famers. I'm not going to be mad about it. Don't get me wrong. But they're not those names like, boom, they're Hall of Famers. You know, Babe Ruth, Ted Williams. It seems like we're putting kind of everybody. I, I do think there's a fair argument to be made that we're, we're making this the Hall of Very Good. What do you think about that?
0: I think another angle of it that's interesting is when you look at the guys like Beltre and Mauer that get in on the first ballot, It used to be where voters would kind of look at a guy and say they'd have almost a fourth bucket, Charlie, where they'd say, is this guy a Hall of Famer? Yeah, probably so, but not this year. Like, yeah, first first ballot that's reserved for the greats of the great. Whereas now I feel like and I don't know if that's voter demographics skewing a little younger and saying my logic on this is if the guy's a Hall of Famer, I'm going to vote for him the first year that I'm eligible to do so. I'm not going to have like a gatekeeping of. Well, he's a Hall of Famer, but not till next year because I I, only such and such guys are deserving of being first ballot. But like, knowing that that's kind of historically how it's been, I was surprised that Joe Maurer got in already. Not that eventually he would be one, but you think about the guys that had to like tick up in percentages for six or seven years before they got their due. It's interesting that Joe Maurer goes right in. I don't know if that's part of the changing of the times or what it is. Uh, Adrian Beltre, I mean, he had 3,000 hits. He, he played for a long time and was really good. Uh, I wasn't that surprised to see him go in on the first ballot just because I do think that 3,000 hit kind of threshold is important. And, and at that point, a lot of guys are, unless there's some other reason that a guy's going to be held out at that point, it makes sense to have him in. Uh, but yeah, I, like Todd Helton feels like a name where I'm like, yeah, it makes sense that he's a Hall of Famer. But then you kind of go and look at the numbers and you go, well, he didn't really hit a lot of home runs, but he was a great hitter. His OPS of like 950 for his career. They held against him the course field aspect of that for a long time. Like you, you feel bad saying it's getting watered down just because a lot of these guys that are going in were obviously really great players. But it does kind of feel like it feels like what you're saying a little bit is the case. And I don't know if that's a bad thing or a good thing, but it, it, it almost feels like once one guy gets in, that you can then compare later generations and say, well, if that guy's in, this guy's got to be in. Look, they're the same player. That may be contributing to it a little bit.
1: That's where I go with this. More so than just so everybody knows, I'm not trying to denigrate the guys that got in, but I feel like when you're kind of letting almost every very good player in, then you do open it up to a lot of guys where you can go, well, wait, that dude's numbers are the exact same and and he's not in. And the one I brought up yesterday with uh Matt Holliday is like Andrew Jones versus I, Jim Edmonds. I mean, yeah. if you look at their numbers, they're I don't want to say they're exactly the same player, but they're pretty damn close of elite gold glove center fielder, power, OPS, Edmonds is better. The war is within a couple. I think it's 60 to 62, whatever it is. Yeah. And so so basically the fact that Edmonds falls off on the first ballot, which is insane, it's a travesty. and Andrew Jones yeah. now has almost 62% of the vote, that makes no sense. The people who are clamoring for like the Dale Murphys of the world. And I'm not even saying that Dale Murphy should or shouldn't get in, but I feel like when you put so many people in, that are just probably very good, then there's... And maybe this is the fun of it, because now you can make a case for a lot of other people. My last my last thought on this before I throw it back to you is, when I started this and I said, basically, you run down the names and you say, who's a surefire Boom Hall of Famer? Of these names, this is my opinion. I, and Beltre, Beltre's is very good. But he was also never... Beltre, to me, was never as good as Manny Ramirez. Beltre was never as good as A-Rod. No. So when I say... Adrian Beltre, Todd Helton, Joe Maurer, Billy Wagner, Gary Sheffield, Andrew Jones, Carlos Beltran, Alex Rodriguez, Manny Ramirez. The only two guys to me that I think when I hear their names are surefire Hall of Famers are the two guys with the lowest vote total from that bucket, and that's A-Rod and Manny Ramirez. And I think that's kind of odd.
0: Would you vote them in, though, knowing the steroids? Like what would your stance be on steroid guys? Because every voter kind of has to make that decision.
1: At this point, because I feel like steroids guys are already in. Right, And I'm not going to sit there and tell you exactly who I Which think, one. but I would. Yeah, um, There are definitely 1,000% steroids guys in the Hall of Fame right now. And if they're in, I'm putting the other guys in. Especially if, I mean, you can make the case. I mean, A-Rod's numbers are insane. I don't like A-Rod as a person. He did a lot of shady stuff. He cheated a lot. Do you think that's part of it? People just yes. don't like him? But I mean, also Manny Ramirez, come on, dude. Manny Ramirez with the Red Sox. I mean, clutch RBIs, ridiculous numbers. Manny Ramirez is a fantastic player. So Big Poppy's in, Manny Ramirez isn't. Big Poppy like... goes
0: in immediately, and I
1: don't, know what I'm they, saying.
0: I don't know if there's ever any steroid stuff with Big Poppy. I, I, I don't think anything was certainly, um, mm. I, I, like I'm saying, I don't believe there was. But I was a kid with a lot of that, so I wasn't necessarily following it super closely all the time. Um, if there was, it would have only been whispers and never anything that was shown. Um, and again, I don't have any reason to believe that, that he was involved in any of that, but everybody loved big poppy, right? Like personality wise, everybody loved him.
1: Hold and, on. Yeah. Go because for I don't have a great memory, but this is from USA today. So this is from 2022 that big poppy tested positive when it was an anonymous, Okay. Sports Illustrated revealed details of the 03 results that were intended to remain private, that 104 players tested positive, that long-suspected Sammy Sosa came up positive, as did the transcendent Alex Rodriguez. I thought Big Poppy was in that. Okay, Ortiz, you see, tested positive for a banned substance during ostensibly anonymous survey testing in 2003. So that's, that's the thing for Big Poppy.
0: Right, so is there a narrative thing that's unfair to certain players, but is it's kind of washed away for others because people want it to be? And I'm not—I don't want to denigrate any specific writers because I'm—I'm part of this writers group. I don't get to vote on this yet. You're the problem. But if I were like thinking about it from that perspective, I would be like, all right, if there was even a whisper about David Ortiz, why were we so ready to vote him in right away? Is it because Manny Ramirez was not as the the personality? You know, he had some. Some run ins and people didn't like him. A Rod, I mean, a lot of people don't like him. For me, it's almost easier because I didn't actually cover those players ever during their playing career. So i would be like, I don't know, I didn't, ha- I didn't talk to him. I didn't have any negative with him, so they're probably in because look at their numbers. Like that's why I, I wonder if it's for younger voters a little easier because you, and and people, I, I I believe that most of the writers would really strive to not have bias kind of come into their voting. You'd you'd hate to think that that would be part of it, but like is it easier for folks who didn't have as close of a relationship or they didn't get screwed over by a guy to say, yeah, I'm going to vote. I would vote him in because I don't have that negative thing in the back of my mind. I don't know if that's what's going on, but I agree with you. If you list off all those names, I think there's some worthy ones. Like I think Carlos Beltran gets in, will get in, um, probably would already be in if not for the sign stealing stuff that he was part of, but that's more recent. And people take some time to say, I care about that and that's bad. And then they're like, I actually don't care about that anymore. I'm going to vote him in year seven with the guys like manny and a rod are they don't have a high enough vote total to where they're ever going to get put in by the writers but if i had a vote and people might say oh you the ethical whatever i probably would put them in for the same reason that you're saying like if any of these other guys that are in already also were involved in steroids is it just because they were not not a dick to people and so you, you like what is the,
1: the rationale i think is a fair thing to ask i do think what you mentioned is true in terms of Time heals all wounds. Back in the day, did I care more? Oh, they're they're disgracing the baseball record book, which I I I still believe. Really? But I just don't care as much. I'm 41. I have kids. <laughs> I just I just don't care as much. And when these guys, you know, there is that that public, I keep using the word sanitization, but like they rebrand themselves. You do some TV, you become a hitting coach like Mark McGuire, you apologize, you get older, you do some charity, you get fat, you see them. You see him at old-timers day, you're like, oh, yeah, they cheated, but now he's 55 years old. Put him in. It means a lot. I get that. I just don't really care that much. I know we're gonna we're talking about this for 15, 20 minutes. I truly don't really care that much, but I do think it's interesting. It's not an easy thing for the writers. I just think I think they're really kind of putting themselves in a weird spot by being picky and choosy with some PED guys.
0: And that's the other thing is, like, it's hard to paint with a broad brush and say, well, the writer's cause you've got some writers and they've, they've changed the policies on this, but for a while it was like, even if you hadn't covered baseball in decades, as long as you, you qualified back in the day, you still had a chance to vote. Now I think you have to have covered the game within a certain number of years before then you, you eventually do kind of retire from the hall of fame ballot, but then you've also got, you know, younger folks that are just getting in and now they're getting an opportunity to vote. How different are they from the person that's decades, their senior that saw baseball differently. It's, it, there's a generation gap that it, it all coalesces into what the voting percentage is. And so people look at that and say, oh, the writers. But like, there, there are a lot of different demographics represented when you talk about the writers that it's not really like a one-size-fits-all thing. And then there's the aspect of like, the writers have voted multiple times overwhelmingly to have it enforced that all the, bu- the the public ballots are released. Everybody's ballot is released. But the Hall of Fame itself has said, no, we don't want to we don't want to do that, even though the writers voted to have it happen. So now it's up to each individual writer to say, I'll be responsible for what my vote is. And I'm going to tell everybody so that if anybody has a problem with it, they can at least know who voted for who, who didn't vote for whom. And, and a lot of writers do release that, but not all of them do. So that's kind of part of the angle as well of when people get mad about Hall of Fame stuff. That is another thing that goes into the
1: bucket, if you will. So maybe Cardinal fans will get mad about this. And maybe this will be our last topic unless we think of something else. But you brought up Joe Maurer. Joe Maurer gets 76.1% of the vote on his first ballot, and he gets in along with Adrian Beltre and Todd Helton. But I think this is interesting because, obviously, a couple, what, couple three, four years from now, Yadier Molina will be on the ballot. Do you think there's a chance Yadier Molina doesn't go in on the first ballot? I bring it up because... Joe Maurer just got in barely his, his career war is 55.2 yadi's I think is, let me, let me find it. yadi's is 42.1, obviously different players. Mauer much better offensively yadi much better defensively. Um, What do you think about that? Any, any chance you think yadi doesn't get in first ballot?
0: Did Ozzy Smith go in on the first ballot or was he on there for a while? I, I was don't, young. I was too I young know. to know the answer to that. Like, it feels like there's a comparison to be made there because Yachty was very much renowned as a defense first player, um, had some clutch moments and really turned himself into a nice hitter um by, by the end, you know, by the middle of his career, and then had had some numbers that he was able to put up. But like that's kind of a comparison that you might draw because nobody would question that that Ozzy Smith is a Hall of Famer, but you know, it wasn't necessarily because of his offense. You think of the go crazy folks and maybe the clutch moments, but like he was the wizard. He was defensively the best there there ever was. And Yachty to a lot of folks is the best there ever was defensively as a catcher. And like, how, what does it do for his hall of fame uh, criteria that you see the Cardinals absolutely go in the tank the year that he leaves. And then the first thing they do is bring him back in whatever capacity he's willing. You want to be here full time. That's fine. We'll take you just whatever you want to do. Yachty, like we'll bring you back. Like, I think that kind of speaks to it. So he should be a first ballot hall of famer. In my opinion, the fact that Joe Maurer does get in on the first ballot, I think helps because if he doesn't, then you could have people make the case. It's like, well, Maurer even had to wait his turn. He had more war. Like, what do people look at? I don't. There's a lot of criteria. I, if I had to guess, I think he does get in on the first ballot, but I wouldn't put that at like 100% confidence interval. Like it, there's a chance that you, you've you already heard and the conversation will ramp up the closer his his name gets to being on that ballot. But a lot of writers that are not from around here you know, not NL Central guys or St. Louis-based writers will be on those. You know, those coastal elitists, uh, Charlie. They'll look at it and say, "I mean, with these numbers. Why? Did they... It's just those Cardinals fans, man. They think this guy's so good. They're so annoying. I'm just not going to vote for him the first time. Maybe later I will. Like, is there maybe going to be some of that sentiment? I don't know. It's going to be the most fascinating discussion in terms of like that we've had in in I don't know a long, long time in terms of Hall of Fame because there are going to be a lot of people that I think are like, yeah, obviously he's a Hall of Famer. There are going to be some vocal people that say he's not, and they'll use the the offensive numbers as the argument, and it's going to be a firestorm. That is my prediction. I think he probably squeaks in on the first ballot, but if he doesn't, just imagine the carnage. I mean, it's going to be crazy.
1: Yeah, I'm seeing Ozzy Smith 2002 gets in with 91.7% of the vote. So I think he was probably first ballot if that was the case, right? Yeah, okay. that was 2002. His last year was 1996. So, I think um, that's right. So I, I think what's interesting, though, and you brought up Ozzy Smith, and I only say this just because I think it's kind of a, a decent conversation piece. To me, the difference, though, is that Ozzy Smith had a much greater national profile because of not just go crazy, folks, but because of the flip, right? You grew up. You're watching this week in baseball. You would always see Ozzy Smith making these unbelievable acrobatic plays all over the highlights, all over Sports Center. Ozzy Smith had this national profile. He was flashy. You just you remember you remember moments. Go crazy, folks! The flips and the great plays. I think Yachty it's much more nuanced, and that's where you you really appreciate Yachty more when you did watch him. I understand yeah. why somebody who didn't even watch the NL Central, could look at Yachty and go, yeah, Yachty's great, but look at his numbers. Okay, he's he's ah, to me, he's not a Hall of Famer. You had to appreciate Yachty every day, how he handled his staff, how nobody ever ran on him when he was catching, how the team ERA was, what, a half run lower for his entire career, how the team freaking fell off the gosh dang map the second <laughs> he left. So yeah. to me, there's a lot more nuance with the Yachty conversation than somebody like, somebody like Ozzy Smith. So I wonder, the fact that Maurer just snuck in, I could see Yadi not getting in first ballot and then Cardinal fans go crazy.
0: There's like 400 writers or something that voted like 390-something this year. Like, how many of them do you trust to have that nuance? I'm not knocking them. I'm not saying they're bad at, at filling out the ballot. I'm just saying, like, it's it's a, it's more of a question than Cardinals fans think it's going to be not because I think it should be a question. I would vote for him on the first ballot. Um, I I don't think I would vote until like five or six years or so down the road. So I I should hope that I would never get the chance to vote on Yachty because he should probably already be in before I ever get a chance to do it. Um, But again, I think for the the exact reasons that you're saying, it's going to be interesting. And like you think about other fan bases that are either coast, you could pick it. They, They, if they follow baseball, they know that Yachty was just, synonymous with the Cardinals for like 20 years. And that should speak to something because the Cardinals were winning in a lot of those years, but like how much gravitas does that carry for somebody checking a box on their ballot when the time comes? I think it should be a yes, but I I am very curious to know whether it will be from some of those that didn't have the upfront close and personal seat that everybody in the middle of the country did throughout his entire career. Like people around here, they know, but does everybody else know I guess we're going to find out in a few years.
1: You know, we did, we, we, uh, we figured it out. We had 30 minutes on the topical news of Carpenter and the roster. And then we did 20 minutes. We did the, the typical sports talk radio, which is when you don't have anything to talk about, you basically say, Hey, should Pete Rose make the hall of fame? And then you talk about the <laughs> hall of fame for 20 minutes, but we did it. Did I miss anything? Brendan did. I mean, this is the time of year. We need some games, man. We need spring training. We need some Grapefruit League games. Did, did I miss anything on, on low-hanging fruit episode three? I don't think you
0: did. I think we're so very close to being able to have some some new topics to talk about within the next few weeks. Um, you did a great job, too, of plugging my YouTube channel, youtube.com slash at bshafer12. You love Charlie. He's got, like, just a behemoth subscriber count. But help me out. I'm trying to catch up a little bit. Uh, Brendan Schaefer, St. Louis Cardinals writer, search it on YouTube. Um, that's where my b Shafe daily podcast is. Um, but I'll, I'll eventually get Charlie, you know, to do more of these podcasts. Once we have more to talk about he just went, I'm a busy guy. I want to go once a week. I don't have, we'll see, you know, we'll see what we'll see if it picks up some steam.
1: Oh dude, during the season, I'll for sure do more than once a week, but right now this is the deadest <laughs> time of year. So yeah. let's be real. There ain't that much to talk about, but we figure it out by the way, you know, my channel, it's a team it's 590 I get a lot of help from 590 by the way we just we just added the uh seeing red podcast with uh Bernie Mickles and will leach to this YouTube it was already on podcast but now you can watch it on this YouTube channel as well so very nice we're trying to create a great channel for just Cardinal fans to get a lot of different voices Brendan that's what we're doing
0: i I respect the hustle and uh we'll continue trying to emulate what you're doing and, and continuing to partake as we uh we keep it rolling with low-hanging fruit
1: All right. So everybody, please comment, like, subscribe. This channel, Brendan's channel, share the video, share the show, share the channel, put it on social media, put it in your group text. Let's go. Low Hanging Fruit, episode three. Brendan, great stuff as always, sir.
0: You too. I'll talk to you next week. Maybe, maybe something will happen this week. Who knows?
1: Uh, Probably just once next week. Yeah. All right. See you guys.